So I, uh, again, read in the bulletin that the children uh, are to be dismissed now, but I also note in the bulletin that for some reason it says that this is optional, so I guess you could stay if you wanted to. Again, uh, there go the best of us. Uh, Lord, help us while we uh, deliberate. I'm going to read the entire eighth chapter of Hebrews. If you have Bibles, you might want to open that. Uh, T and I went to see the movie The Jesus Revolution this week. Uh, There were emails floating around among those in our 70s that uh, it was urgent urgently encouraged that one friend of mine said don't walk run you know you got to go see this movie and I was converted in 1971 and that movement had an impact as it did on a lot of us and it was interesting that uh, it's, it's mainly about Chuck Smith and it's about the beginning of Calvary Chapel and one of the things that happens is he holds up a Bible uh, as he gets up and says this is God's word let's open it up and I, I thought it's kind of crummy to hold up an iPad and and do the same thing. It misses some of the punch, so I might be carrying a Bible up here. Uh, Richard Pratt borrowed mine a couple of weeks ago, and if you remember that sermon, he said it's, it's really only a prop as I carry it up there, because he had the passage memorized that he was going to preach on. Um, but this is the Word of God, and we ought to be attentive to that, uh, that when we read this, the public reading of Scripture Uh, that we have in the back of our brains the various promises in the scripture, uh, that it is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, that it is breathed out by God and is useful uh, for everything that we need spiritually. Uh, And I always remember the promise in Isaiah that God does not uh, cast out his word only to have it return to him void. It always accomplishes the purposes uh, for which he sends it. So, Hear now the word of God. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better." since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with them. When he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Thus far the reading of God's Word. When I was a young man, a new Christian, there was a book published. Uh, If you're my age, you might remember it. The title of the book, intriguingly, was How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. Does anyone remember that book? Uh, How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. Uh, On a closer look, it was a brief and accessible commentary to Romans. Uh, But the title really caught the eye. Uh, and, And you might think... Uh, that it's a, it, it's, it's a hook, you know, and, and I thought being a Christian was a matter of being religious. But uh, in the last 50 years or so, it's been um, somewhat common to distinguish uh, between vital uh, Christianity, vital Christian faith, uh, and religion. Uh, several years ago, uh, there was a YouTube uh, that made a very big splash. It was entitled, it was a rap song, I think. Uh, Jesus Hates Religion. Uh, Predictably, after that, there was a flurry uh, on the internet in which terms were clarified and caveats issued. Uh, But you might wonder, you know, what's the fuss in all of that? Uh, From a normal perspective, Christianity is considered one of the world's religions. Christianity is about God, and religions are about God. Uh, Christianity has rules that are similar Uh, to other religions, a a pious or a moral way of life. Uh, So, you know, is this just a publicity stunt? Is it just something uh, to lure people in? Uh, Or is there an essential incompatibility between Jesus and religion? Well, it depends on your understanding of religion. Uh, And in the eighth chapter of Hebrews, we've got a stark contrast uh, presented to us. Uh, I love the fact that in the uh, very first verse, uh, the writer, preacher, uh, tells us what his point is. You don't have to guess. You don't need to have a preacher pointed out to you. You don't need to do any exegesis. Uh, there is a main point, and that the main point is this. We have such a high priest. Back in the end of chapter 7, that high priest is described as holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Uh, In a word, uh, we have a perfect high priest. Now, you know, again, what's the point of that? Uh, It's consistent with everything we've been doing in Hebrews up to this point, or at least the past several weeks. Uh, You understand that the the recipients of this letter or of this sermon were a beleaguered community. They were persecuted. Uh, They are frightened and shaky. You know, one of the interesting things, and this is the last time I'll mention the movie, but one of the interesting things about that movie is that the, the foundation is that the pastor uh, has a certain disdain for the hippies. And, uh, he, and, he, and he condemns them as he's watching these things on TV. But there's this massive unrest that's taking place politically uh, in the 60s and uh, internationally 
and he's trying to figure out his way. Well, again, when you look at it, you have to understand that the massive unrest that we are now experiencing politically is not new. You know, we have, we, nostalgia is the enemy of truth. And we often have this nostalgia that things used to be better, but now they're a lot worse. So, you know, it's simply not true. And in the midst of that, of the unrest that we're currently experiencing, you know, where is the group of people about which we tend to be grumpy? And let me just be more personal, about whom I tend to be grumpy. And, uh, and of course, the theme of this film is the way that this guy opened his heart, opened his church, and welcomed those kinds of people in and sparked a revival. Uh, well, here also is a beleaguered community to whom the letter of Hebrews is being uh, written or preached. They're frightened and shaky, and what, what the uh, writer, the preacher, is saying to them is the greatness of Jesus Christ, when it is understood, when it is displayed, will be the remedy for your shakiness. In fact, you know, the greatness of Jesus Christ is a remedy uh, not only for a shaky faith, it's a remedy for unbelief. It's a remedy for a guilty conscience. It's a remedy for psychological instability. It's a remedy for addictive sins. It's a remedy for pride and hubris. To understand Jesus in larger and larger terms, remedies I would say it remedies every problem you have. Every single problem you have finds its substantial remedy in the greatness of Jesus Christ. If you will soak in the greatness of Christ, you can expect remarkable results in your life. So in the middle of Hebrews, there's a sustained teaching uh, regarding Jesus as a great high priest. It was first mentioned in chapter 4. Uh, as a means of encouraging uh, the congregation uh, to faithfulness. Uh, the writer wants them to be faithful. And to that end, he presents Jesus as a great high priest. Uh, that developed into a multifaceted uh, discussion. Uh, first, in chapter 4, Jesus, being a great high priest, is sympathetic uh, with your troubles. He understands them. And he is able to intercede for you uh, sympathetically. In chapter 7, we saw that he's in the lineage of Melchizedek. This morning, we'll see that he brings the new covenant. Uh, next week, we'll see that he enacts the real and true sacrifice. And when we get to chapter 10, the whole discussion is wrapped up by an invitation to draw near. To draw near to this faithful, uh, powerful, great uh, high priest. And so, it is a deep discussion, and, and you always need to kind of have in mind that on the one hand, the gospel, uh, the basic message of the gospel is very simple. It's very easy to understand. But it should be no surprise, God being God, that delving in to the height, depth, breadth, and width of the gospel um, is as deep as you want to go, and it, and it requires careful attention. The gospel is both simple and profound. It's simple enough that children can get a hold of it and get a hold of it often more truly and more faithfully than adults can get a hold of it. But it's also true that scholars can spend their entire careers seeking to plumb the depths of it 
and they won't get to the end of it. So it's both. And, uh, and here in chapter 8, part of this larger discussion, we're trying to dig deep in what it means that Jesus is a faithful high priest. Now, I want to leave this initial discussion, verses 3 through 6, to next week because the, 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 it starts to get into the topic that gets covered in chapter 9 having to do with the true sacrifices. You know, the larger point of this chapter is that Jesus is the bringer of the new covenant. That's the big thing uh, that's happening here. Uh, and it's kind of similar to what we were looking at uh, last week and the week before. Uh, we were looking in chapter 7 about uh, Melchizedek, and he's this obscure person in the Old Testament. He's kind of, he occupies one quarter of one chapter in the book of Genesis, appearing out of nowhere and disappearing right afterwards, and you would forget him completely, except that this little verse in Psalm 110 mentions uh, that the Lord is going to produce a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, tiny little verse, and the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, picks up on that verse in Psalm 110 and shows how it pointed ultimately to Jesus and in his fulfillment uh, of his role as a high priest. Well, here's another passage. Now, it's from Jeremiah, uh, a very well-known book, and it's the longest Old Testament quote uh, anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, But similarly, it's taking up a topic that isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. There was going to be another covenant. A new covenant is what Jeremiah prophesied. Now, again, this looms large for us. But but for folks who are reading the Old Testament and the Old Testament only, it was this isolated little text that didn't make much sense and didn't get much reinforcement uh, anywhere else, at least explicitly, by the name New Testament. So again, you know, the passing observation would be that a close study of the Bible, a close study of the Word of God, a close study of the Gospel is going to bear fruit. Pay attention uh, even to those things that don't seem to make sense to you. Uh, Those of us, and I don't know how many of you are doing this, following the McShane Bible readings uh, through the year. Uh, McShane has got us right now in Exodus. And so T and I will dutifully read through you know, these laborious instructions about the artifacts of the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle and the artifacts. And what's crazy is if you go back and read uh, Exodus, is they actually occur twice. They occur first uh, when the Lord is telling Moses on the mountain, this is what it ought to look like. And then they occur again, you know, the craziness of the way the Hebrew language is written, they occur again when they're actually building the tabernacle. You know, but I'm reading about the basin, and I'm reading, you know, and all of the details of the, of the garb that Aaron had to wear, and the, the construction of the ephod, and the construction of the breastplate, and the turban, and all the, and you have a tough time getting it in your brain, you try to pull out a study Bible so you can get an illustration of it. Uh, I hate to say it because it'll make me sound immature. But it can, it can appear boring when you're reading through all that stuff. But what, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is saying, pay close attention. It is not boring. 
And in fact, it will expand almost immeasurably your comprehension of who Jesus is. And all of us have got a truncated view of Jesus to one degree or another. All of us have reduced him into somewhat manageable categories. And the scripture tends to kind of blow that up and get us thinking in much bigger terms. So, here in Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a prophet in Israel. If you remember, he saw in his own lifetime the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, He himself was carried into exile in Babylon. He saw firsthand the dissolution of the first covenant. And his language here is pretty powerful, uh, that he finds fault uh, with that old covenant. Uh, that he, he, he calls that old covenant um, uh, fruitless. We, we got into this last week. That it was not helpful. It could not accomplish the purposes for which it was sent. Um, see, the way, I, mean, I think you understand this, but let me just back up and say this is what happened. The Lord delivered uh, Moses out of the land of Egypt, brought the whole nation of Israel with him, uh, took them to the mountain, gave them the law, The law existed in the context of a covenant, and the law existed within that context as the stipulations that were to be obeyed if the covenant was to be fulfilled. And and in fact, if you go to Deuteronomy 27, 28, uh, you will see there that there are promises given to Israel if they'll obey the covenant, great promises of of, uh, pastures and plenty. Uh, But there are also stipulate curses that are laid on them to say, if you don't disobey, I'm going to come after you and your life will be hell. Well, as Israel progresses, guess what happens? They're relentlessly disobedient. It's haunting to go back and read Exodus chapter 24, where they gather before the Lord to initiate this covenant, and they all with one voice promise, we will obey, we will obey. And if you know in your own life, there are times when you've said something similar to the Lord. We will obey. Uh, But they disobey. And they disobey uh, disobey quickly, and they disobey thoroughly. God sends prophets as his prosecuting attorneys. As they are breaking the covenant, he says, come back, come back. God's very patient with them. But in fact... It all came crashing down. And Jeremiah was alive to see that. So Jeremiah's name is on this huge collection of prophetic writings in the Old Testament. And in that collection, in chapter 31, there is this mention of a new covenant. It's a somewhat obscure expression of hope. In the middle of all that Israel is going through, in the middle of their being deported, in the middle of the temple being destroyed and their nation being wiped out and leveled, here's this expression of hope. One day, there's going to be a new covenant. Now, I want us to pay attention to the wording that describes the differences between the covenants. Verse 8, he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And then verse 9, it calls the old covenant, not like that covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant 
so I showed no concern for them, uh, declares the Lord. The old covenant was violated by the people, it was violated by their fathers, their forefathers, and consequently, and this is surprising language, isn't it? Consequently, God showed no concern for them as regards the covenant. And did he continue to love them? Of course, he continued to love them. But as regards the covenant, he showed no concern for them. Uh, Rather, here's what happens in verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And, uh, And I love the repetition of that first person, I will make with the house of Israel after those days, this covenant that I will make. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. In the new covenant there are no laws. In the new covenant there is no teaching. In the new covenant, the primary aspect of it is that they will know God and God will know them. Relationship with God is the central feature. This is one of the differences that is often made, that made a difference to me when I was a young man between vital Christian faith and what I had been experiencing as a church attender all my life. And the word, I'll never forget it. I mean, I was raised Roman Catholic, so I never heard this word before. But I remember going to this campus life meeting, Youth for Christ, and the leader said, you know, what I'm talking about here to you guys as we read the Bible is that you can have a relationship with Jesus. Now, that becomes kind of truncated, a catchword, you know, something that gets used without us really understanding what it means. Uh, But it is absolutely essential to the New Covenant the way it's being described in Jeremiah and reiterated here in Hebrews 8. That relationship with God is the central feature, knowing and being known. And then that last verse, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Mercy is going to cover the iniquities. God is going to forget their sins. Not going to remember them anymore kind of get the idea that he had been in the practice of remembering them within that covenant, but now he's going to forget them. This is really a big category. Um, Don Carson has written a commentary on uh, Matthew, and it's interesting that in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, all this stuff on the Sermon on the Mount on you have heard that it was said, but now I say to you, you know, where these laws are, are established, but then Jesus says, even though you're keeping them, you're breaking them. All of it has to do with the establishment of the new covenant. Especially the place where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy. Carson says that's the new covenant on display, the new covenant uh, being put into play. So, we have to fast forward from what Jeremiah wrote and was little understood except as part of an obscure hope, we've got to fast forward 700 years 
And Jesus hasn't mentioned this explicitly, but on the night in which he was betrayed, he takes a cup of wine, he gives thanks, and he gives the cup to his disciples and says, take and drink, as we're we're about to do. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of their sins. I've often wondered what happened to the disciples at that point when they heard that language. Now, you know, quite likely it went right over their heads, and they only thought about it later. But reasonably you could understand that they might have looked at each other and said, and, and just said to each other, what in the world is he talking about? The new covenant, is he referring to Jeremiah 31? That covenant? In which there, there wouldn't be any laws, there wouldn't be any teachers? But we would be known by God and he would be known by us? Is that what he's talking about? Well, interestingly, Jesus did not open up the scriptures and do a Bible study or preach a sermon on Jeremiah 31. Uh, He left that for the book of Hebrews. And here we are, and we see what he meant when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So, we kind of back up and say, back to the original question, what's your understanding of religion? Comparative religions courses do teach that each religion has two components. One component is there is a being beyond our world, and the second component is there's a separation between that being and us, and that separation has to be bridged. That's what every religion teaches, that there is a God, and we are separated from him, and we have to figure out a way to bridge that separation. In every other religion in the world, The bridge to God is built by our good behavior. We take on our shoulders the burden of reconciliation. And again, folks, I want to say this to you as compadres, as brothers and sisters, as fellow travelers. This is our deep and abiding, destructive instinct, to think that that gap needs to be bridged by our behavior. It seems noble, seems honorable. I've shared the gospel with many men in the South. I spent 20 years in North Carolina, and, uh, and several of the men, too many to count, said to me, I can't accept that gift because it violates my conscience. I was taught by my dad that I needed to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, that I needed to carry my own weight, that I needed to accept this burden. It seems noble, but not only is it deeply flawed, it is in fact emblematic of the problem. Because to put yourself in that position does two things, and again, this is an instinct. It makes little of God's holiness, making him easy to please. And secondly, it makes much of our ability, making us capable of pure moral good. 
First, it makes God, it, it diminishes God's holiness, making him easy to please. And if you think God's easy to please, go and read those accounts in Exodus about all the stuff that had to go into the manufacture of the tabernacle and its artifacts. You think he's easy to please, go look at that. And then secondly, it makes us, it makes much of our ability and makes us capable of pure moral good. I can bridge that gap. Now, remember what was said about Jesus at the, at the end of chapter 7. He is described as holy, definitively, not partially. He's described as innocent. There's nobody in the room that's innocent. He's described as unstained. Curiously, he's described as separated from sinners. That is, he's not like us. And he's described as exalted above the heavens, perfect uh, forevermore. We noticed the last three words, that he is made perfect forever. So, in the scheme of religion as commonly understood, we human beings take to ourselves those attributes. I can be holy. I can be unstained. I can be innocent. I can recapture all of this stuff. I remember having a couple come to me. It was right before I was going to leave Winston-Salem and move to Massachusetts. And it was devastating at the time, but amusing to look back on. But uh, this couple had come to our church. They had moved from Colorado. And I think it's so far distant that I can even name it. But this guy had been a, well, I, I, I won't name it, but he was a, uh, a salesman. You know, he was an account representative. He headed out a brand in Colorado. And while they were there, um, his wife had the deepest suspicion possible that he'd had an affair. And she went and she accused him of it, and he said, no, are you crazy? I wouldn't do that. And, uh, and about once a year, uh, it would come back on her as this big weight. I don't know if it was the time of year or what it was. She'd say, I still can't help but think that you did that to me. And he would say, no, no, why do you keep bringing up what you know? He would blame her for bringing it up. Well, they made their way to our church, moved to Winston-Salem with a different brand. <clears throat> and I think that in the process of being part of the church, they became Christians. Although it was one of those slow transitions as they joined the church. And at one point, the Spirit hammers this guy's conscience, and he goes to his wife and says, uh, you're right, I did have the affair. And she was outraged, she blew up properly, I think, threw him out of the house. You know, he called me up, living in a motel at the, end of at the edge of town. What can I do, what can I do? Uh, we had a series of counseling sessions, reconciliation was effective, and they got back together. And one of the last meetings I had before leaving town, you know, we got together to celebrate what God had done in their lives, you know, and giving them confession and forgiveness and repentance. And, uh, and, and she said at, in that meeting, she goes, you know, the only thing I regret is that we have lost our innocence. That's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? And, and you know, reading Hebrews 7 would have you know that innocence is not one of the things that any Christian can ever claim. We never were innocent. Innocence is not our legacy. Our legacy is redemption. That's the legacy. 
The scheme of religion, as commonly understood, makes us think that we can be innocent, makes us think that we can be holy. It makes us think that we can take on to ourselves those attributes. You know, it's laughable, but horrific, that when Jesus says to James and John, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with, they say, sure. Yeah, we're with you. We can die for sinners. We can lay hold of that. Well, the, de- the life, death, and resurrection wipes out all that nonsense. On the one hand, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus destroys the pretense. James and John cannot be baptized with Jesus' baptism. On the other hand, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus gives rest for those who are weary from trying to save themselves. See, all of us are trying to save ourselves. The ones who are in trouble are the ones who think they're actually doing it. The ones who are closer to the truth are the ones who are in despair. And Jesus says to you in very clear words, come to me. Come to me. I mentioned a few weeks ago Dick Lucas, the English preacher. And his saying that if you really want to understand the book of Hebrews, you have to put yourself, imagine yourself in a conversation, imagine the conversation between a Roman and his Christian neighbor in the first century. And the Roman says, oh, you've got a new religion, where's your temple? And as a Christian, you would have to say, uh, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. And he says, you don't have a temple. Where do your priests operate? And you say, we don't have priests. Jesus is our priest. Well, where do you do your sacrifices? Where do you do your offerings? Where do you do the things so God will accept you? And you answer, Jesus is our sacrifice, and we've already been accepted because of what he's done. The last rejoinder that Lucas gives is, what kind of religion is this? And, uh, and you'd have to say, well, it's not a religion, at least the way you understand religions. Uh, and in fact, Christians were put to death in the first century uh, as atheists. That's what they were called those who had rejected religion. So, this is, this is true life that is turned upside down. Our lives are turned upside down in the gospel. Rather than good deeds serving as a kind of self-promotion, they issue spontaneously from a heart that's been received by the grace of God. This is why our service is oriented around what God has done rather than our performance. This is why all of the preaching that takes place here is about what God has done, and duty is secondary to that. You know, this final elimination of law and teaching hasn't come fully into play. You've still got ministers who preach. But the elimination of law and teaching has begun. It has begun in the New Covenant. 
And relationship with God, knowing and being known, has replaced the contractual arrangement of merit. And so it is interesting that in one way, rightly understood, love for one another has replaced a rule-based society. And this, this requires some depth, and maybe we'll get into it in Sunday school. But in religion, if I can use that word pejoratively, we build our reputations by committing to tell the truth, protecting one another from harm, no killing, no stealing, no lying, sexual purity. By those things, we build a reputation and we are justified. But in the new covenant, that is turned on its ear. In the, in the new covenant, resonating with the Ten Commands and putting them into practice doesn't build a reputation. It rather serves as the means by which we love each other. That's really what we're doing. That when I don't commit adultery, I'm loving my wife and I'm loving you guys. That when I don't murder and refrain from anger, it's how I love you guys. When I don't steal, it's how I love you and love my neighbor and love all those around me. When I don't bear false witness, it's a way for me to love you because God first loved me. And we obey those commands, we put them into play, uh, but added to those, isn't it interesting the way the New Testament builds on those to describe a character that gets way beyond mere obedience to the law? Added to those are hard-to-define qualities in a Christian community like generosity and humility and compassion and kindness and patience and rest. All of those things are added on. So really, in the end, religion, again, used in a certain way, is about what you accomplish, and the gospel is what, about what God has accomplished by his grace, receiving you through faith by his grace. And that's why it can be said, rightly understood, that Jesus hates religion. He hates the hubris that undergirds the assertion of self-salvation. And he hates it even more when preachers load their congregations up with duty upon duty. What is offered instead is this table. This is an intensely Christian table. Intensely Christian. Uh, it is the repudiation of religion. And it is the exemplification of grace. God is offering you a meal. He's saying, come, let's have supper together. I said before, and I'll say again, that um, this meal, as we understand it in the Bible, and you have to read carefully, is imbued with spiritual potency. Uh, such that uh, those who eat and drink in faith believing, not patting themselves on the back for a good week or a good month, but rather desperate and hungry and thirsty, will be nourished. You'll actually be nourished. Uh, just as eating breakfast this morning got you ready for the day, uh, so eating this meal will nourish you spiritually and will be part of the way that God grows you more and more to look like Jesus.
And conversely, those who come without faith, those who come with the Bible calls not recognizing uh, the body and the blood, uh, eat and drink condemnation on themselves because God will not be mocked. And this cannot be taken lightly. So I don't want to lay a big burden on you, but I do want to say, respond to this invitation in faith. If you're not yet a Christian, hold off. Would love to talk to you afterwards. Any of the elders who are distributing would love to talk to you. And let's see if we can remedy that. Let's pray together before we partake. Father in heaven, it's an amazing thing that you have given us this meal. That the heart of our experience as Christians uh, is to receive bread and wine from your hand. That ought to definitively smash all of our assumptions and all of our presumptions. Uh, So come, please, be with us. Give us grace to see this. Give us joy in the participation of it. Uh, Use these elements not simply uh, for their physical properties, uh, but rather use their spiritual potency uh, to affect the growth of the church and the honor of your name and the satisfaction of our souls. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.